0: It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hey, friends, this is Andy. This episode of Accelerate is brought to you by KiteDesk. KiteDesk is the all-in-one sales development platform that lets you manage all of your sales development activities, such as email, direct dial phone calls, and your daily to-dos, all in one place to open up conversations, book more qualified meetings, and really create a predictable pipeline. Kite Desk flow and KiteDesk find allows us to find exactly the right people in the industries we're looking for in the roles that we're looking for. That's KiteDesk customer Michael Orphis. Michael is head of sales at Stratified, In addition to the all-in-one management of his sales development team's days, KiteDesk helps him with another big part of his job.
1: We have the ability with Kite Desk to do what we call targeted campaigns.
0: Our conversion rate from what we were doing in the past to what we're doing now has been really massive. So, you don't have to take tons of time to research, prospect, then blast large lists of people that never turn into sales opportunities.
1: We're seeing higher clicks, we're seeing higher open rates, and without question, we've seen a
0: massive increase in pipeline generation. So, to learn more about Kite Desk, schedule a free demo, and learn how to create predictable pipeline at your sales organization, go to kitedesk.com forward slash accelerate. That's k-i-t-e-d-e-s-k dot com slash accelerate. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am really excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Dan Rome president of Digital Rome, best-selling author of multiple books, including The Back of the Napkin. And the book we're going to talk about today, Draw to Win, which I will admit up front is a book I absolutely fell in love with, found it very inspiring. Dan, welcome to Accelerate. Andy, thanks so much. So, take a minute, mate. Uh, Fill up a little introduction of yourself here. Tell us how you got your start in business and then we're going to talk about how you ended up as the art director for the Moscow Times. I thought that was very interesting.
1: Oh, this you—we're going to go down the good story, okay? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, because well, that so, was that was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, so I—it I, was indeed, yes. and, and there's there there is a narrative there that takes us through it. And, and you asked, how did I get started? Well, like all kids, I drew. Uh, the only difference is I never stopped. <laughs> and when I got into business, that made me the weirdo because you know, if if, if you have kids or if you know kids. I have Everybody them? in kindergarten is drawing pictures. That's what kids do because if if you want to record your thoughts and communicate them to somewhere else to someone else and capture them, you don't yet know how to read and write, so your option is drawing and it's not a scary option. Everybody just does it and typically uh, you know kids generally enjoy the drawing. Um I just never got past that. I'm not one of those people who somewhere in third grade got told by my teacher, you know, that doesn't look like a horse. You're a terrible drawer. You should never draw again and therefore ran away from it. On the contrary, I just loved the drawing and I kept doing it. And uh, this story, since we're going to bend to Moscow for a moment, I'll just fill in with a little bit more color of what happened. So when I got to university, uh, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and mm-hmm. I went to school out here in California. And I went to a great school, University of California at Santa Cruz, that encourages students to be very multidisciplinary and basically come up with weird combinations of subjects. So in the to, end, we I have got to it. insert there is
0: ghost sea slugs.
1: <laughs> ghost slugs, exactly. And and so I was studying my biology and my chemistry. And uh, at the same time, I thought, well, I'll do a double. I'll do a double major in biology and in painting because remember, I'd always drawn and I I liked doing that, and I thought it would be a great kind of way to let off some steam from some of the more uh, advanced science courses yeah. I was taking. Organic chemistry. You, well, that's the one. And so, Andy, point you're going to you've made it is imagine this: during one quarter uh, in the morning, I'm doing my organic chemistry courses, and for anybody who's ever taken it, or if you haven't, organic chemistry is that science that. You understand it because you build models of things. If you've ever seen those chemical stick-and-ball models, that's organic chemistry. And what essentially – what I loved about organic chemistry, it is is a very visual science in the sense that you're building physical models of these molecules, and the pieces only fit together in certain ways – Uh, And so, that's how you can build out these models. And so, the course is essentially learning what are kind of the visual rules of how do these different atoms interact with each other and how would you structurally put that together. And I thought this is cool. And then in the afternoon, I'd go into my art course, a a drawing composition class, and the professor is telling us, you know, if you want to appeal to the human eye, there are these certain sort of visual structures uh, and proportions that you should put things against and they will end up looking right and appealing and i thought wait a minute that's the same thing my professor in organic chemistry was huh. telling this morning these are two different classes from two literally different schools at the university the school of art and the school of of you know chemical science and yet they're teaching me in a in a conceptual way the same lesson and i thought this is pretty powerful and that was a kind of an epiphany moment realizing I really love drawing. I love, really love building models. I really love the visual side of things. Wouldn't it be interesting if I could find a way to push this into fields where people tend not to think very visually? And as fate would have it, that ended up becoming business. And hmm. uh, you know, there are many business professors who teach strategy and things like that who now use kind of structural models to explain concepts that normally would have been very verbal and very abstract. And it makes sense to people, you know. And you think about Venn diagrams, a set of intersecting circles, sure. or you think about uh, two by two charts. How do we create kind of landscapes of different conceptual ideas by mapping them together according to some sort of uh, coordinate system and creating these visual models because they make sense to our minds? And when I can create something visually, that is, when I can make a picture of it, I can guarantee people are going to remember it and react to it a lot better than they do my long handwritten endless paragraphs. And that's, Andy, that's kind of the summary of, of what I do is work with business people now, teaching them to take very good, but very often complex ideas that are difficult to communicate well and quickly and solve that problem by being able to communicate them with simple pictures. And that's, that's my story.
0: Okay. So, back to Moscow.
1: Well, so there I was at Santa Cruz, and uh, my girlfriend at the time was a, this is back in the late 1980s, and, and you know maybe some of your listeners will remember the days of the ending days of the Soviet Union and Glasnost and Perestroika, and, and uh, Gorbachev was in power, and these were in, Reagan on the United States side, and uh, my girlfriend had been a Soviet and Russian studies major. And so it was after four years of studying the language and the culture and the history and the politics, was really desperate to try to get a job in the Soviet Union. But that was not the kind of time you could just get on a plane and fly to Moscow and get off and get a job. I mean, you needed a security clearance and CIA approvals and all this kind of stuff. So she worked it and finally landed a job becoming a nanny at the American embassy in Moscow for a year. And about halfway through that year, she finagled me a diplomatic passport so I could come and just pay a visit. (laughs) And I went over there, and um, it was interesting because we met some people from a Dutch publishing company that were thinking, very good business people, if anything that Gorbachev says comes true, and if there really is this thaw of relations between the West and and the Soviet bloc, then there's going to be a huge influx of business people from all over the world trying to sell stuff And Moscow is a mystery. I mean, there's no phone book. uh, There's really no advertising. There's very little signage on the streets. You couldn't tell a restaurant from, you know, a storefront. Everything's very secret. Profit's illegal. It's a mystery, especially to Western people trying to come in. And so, they said, well, let's put this city magazine together uh, that basically provides instructions on how do you live and function in this city. And they needed English-speaking editors, so they hired my girlfriend, and they needed designers. And I'd been working for a couple of years as a graphic designer in San Francisco, and they offered me a job. And I thought, wow, well, that's kind of a cool adventure. I was 26 years old. Why not move to the Soviet Union for six months and take this job and see how it plays out? Well, as it played out, I ended up staying on for seven years, and I ended up founding um, the literally the first Western advertising agency in what was then the Soviet Union. And it was fascinating, because how did that happen? Well, it's a simple answer. Right place, right time, right technology. Our office, putting together this magazine with the Dutch, we had the very first Macintosh computers legally imported into the Soviet Union. We had to get all these waivers, sure. To get because they were Motorola uh, 68020 processors, which at that time were illegal to uh, export or import into the Soviet bloc because uh, they were too advanced. So we had to get a waiver. So we had uh, the newest technology that was being used in New York, in San Francisco by graphic designers, we had it in Moscow. And so these uh, business people would come in, you know, imagine someone's parachuted in from Atlanta. And this guy's job is to sell Coca-Cola, set up the Coca-Cola office in Moscow. And he needs to do advertising and marketing and all the typical things and doesn't have any tools or resources to do it. He sees this slick city magazine printed nicely in English and he, with our office address, and he'd come by. And this happened dozens of times. And our boss finally looked at me and said, Dan, you're doing all this advertising work, uh, localization into Russian. You should just set up a business. And he supported me in doing it, and I did. Uh, And so the very first clients were, in fact, uh, Hewlett Packard, Intel, Coca Cola, Philip Morris, um, uh, EDF, Electricity de France. I mean, Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting because if you think about it, the opening of a new market, who comes in, a market in which people have no or very, very little money available. So the average person in Moscow. Could maybe eat together enough money to buy a you know a bottle of Coke as a new sort of shiny Western thing, or a nuclear power plant. Those are kind of the two options. <laughs> and so I was doing advertising and marketing for both. So on the one hand, cigarettes and and candy bars and Coke, and on the other hand, uh, you know national telephone systems, nuclear power plants, right. Westinghouse turbines, uh, computers. You know, you name it, and it was fascinating. And Very interesting. The key here. Andy, why does this have any relevance to our story is because, you know, when I arrived in Russia, did I speak Russian? I did not. And yet now I find myself working with a bunch of people with whom I don't have a common spoken language, but we drew a lot of pictures. And that was how communication really worked. And, you know, if, if you're willing to sit down with someone, different culture, different language, and just draw stuff out, and even though you're each talking a different language as you're drawing, if you're sharing the pen back and forth – you get each other really well. You know, a circle is a circle and an arrow is an arrow, and the basics of visuals transcend all spoken language, and that's why I love them. And so that was uh, landed me in this position of saying, I really like working with business people, helping them clarify what they're trying to communicate, and pictures do a good job, and uh, came back to the United States after a few years and, and have just never stopped.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so, yeah, all about visual problem-solving, storytelling, I mean, they're in sales in particular these days, I mean, there's probably in the last three years, there's probably been, I don't know how many books, probably couldn't count the number of books written about the importance of storytelling mm-hmm. in sales and in business. Um, yeah, Daniel Kahneman you know, said no one ever made a decision because of a number, they need a story. And you take it a step further and say every story really needs a picture.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, You know, if I I may, I I have spent most of my career in sales. I mean, uh, business development. You know, Mm -hmm. you never call it sales when you're in, you know, consulting companies. It's always (laughs) business development. Well, it's the same thing. Heaven forbid, you should call it what it is, Uh, but it is sales. And I realized something early on that uh, in those days in the consulting companies, so, you know, the problem that we're being asked to solve is usually very big and very complex and requires dozens of pages of PowerPoint to even try to explain. And so whenever you have a sales meeting, or otherwise known as consultative sales meeting, you know, you go into the meeting, you sit around the table, and there's six or eight people, and they're talking at each other, and nobody really understands what the other person is saying very well. Um, That's what I took away from it. But I would be the guy, and I know you've seen this person in many of your meetings, who can't wait to go up to the whiteboard or the flip chart and start drawing these circles and saying, wait a minute, if I understand effectively what you're saying, I'm going to draw a circle. This is us. This is our business over here. And then I'm going to draw another circle over here. And this represents our customer base. And there's an arrow between them that represents, you know, this is the channels through which we're selling. And then there's an arrow, arrow coming back. And this is the revenue we're generating. But what you're telling me is there's a new competitor who's inserted themselves in between our two circles. And so you draw another circle in there, maybe in another color, and say, so our challenge here is How do we bypass or change the relationship so that they're no longer in the way? And you draw the picture out and it's amazing because the temperature in the room completely changes from all of this very political, um, uh, kind of protective, who's covering who, who's not saying what, and all of a sudden just becomes clear, there it is on the board. And people participate in a very different way, and they'd say, Dan, interesting drawing, but I actually don't think our client's coming in that way at all. I see them coming in over here. And then you say, okay, well, here's the pen. Show me me. what you mean. You, uh, You draw it. And then people would. And nobody had a fear of drawing. And the outcome would be, frankly, pretty much every time we went in and did a pitch that way, we won. And in many, many cases, we as a little consulting company did not deserve to win that project or that contract. But the reason we won it is because we were the one who who drew the pictures. And that's what really got me started down this whole draw to win path. It's really, you know, I talk about using pictures to be a better leader, which we can talk about, how to be a better innovator. And yet, to me, probably the key to all of this in business is how do you sell your idea? And a couple of things happen when you draw, you know, you do have this kind of mind meld with your your prospect. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, and it's a kind of a mind meld that just will not happen any other way. Um, talking is great. Talking and drawing is even better. And I'll often think that, you know, in sales, whether it's for a small business or consultative for a big organization or anything else, you're usually, there's usually some competition going on. I mean, there's usually a competitor. Usually your prospect has some other options. Uh, and you do well, need the to, differentiate. to do nothing. It's
0: the biggest option. Oh.
1: To do nothing, it, it, sure. So you've got to you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself. And it's an overused word, but it's also true. If everybody is selling the same thing and it looks exactly the same, then sales is so so what. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have often found that what people would really like, of course, is they want a story. Uh, they also want a connection. Uh, they want to trust you. There's a lot of things that are going on in the sale. We all know this. Uh, but I also think one that we tend to neglect is people would like to see some creativity taking place in the actual meeting. Some real, honest to goodness, human creativity happening. Some real thinking. And if you think about it, short of talking and someone could talk better or more charismatically or more fluidly, that's fine. But there really aren't that many other creative outlets you have in a typical meeting scenario other than talking. I mean, you can't sing your proposal. Um, you can't get up and dance on the table and say, you know, let's dance through our consultative sales. <laughs> the what, the <laughs> one creative outlet you hey. have legitimate, legitimate right. is, is to draw. Right. And there's nothing wrong with it. And it automatically differentiates you from everybody else because you're the company that started to draw the picture. Well, you and said if you practice, yeah,
0: go right. Ahead. And you talk about it in the book, though, but there's a science behind how the visual conveys the story more powerfully than the spoken word.
1: Lots of science and and lots of of, of process. And um, you know, it's funny, Andy. I, I just I, you mentioned the science, and we talk about data a little bit. I'm going to throw out two data points that I nobody knows that are just incredible and and go right to the case of why you want to draw pictures if you want to win. And so the first data point is. Uh, if you think about the human brain, by weight, about one third of your brain is dedicated to vision only. By weight, one third of all the neurons in your brain are there to help process vision. And then about another third of all the neurons in your brain are there to help you process vision in concert with all of your other sensory inputs, which leaves about one third of your entire brain capacity to do everything else that you do. Other than vision and sense processing, everything else has got about a third of your brain to do it. So it's pretty remarkable. And in fact, um, more of your brain is dedicated to processing vision than any other thing that you do. And that's pretty powerful. Wow. Wow. Somewhere between a third and half of all the b- neurons in our brain are focused on vision. That's amazing. We don't think about that very much. So, but here's, so either so,
0: processing it or processing it, as you said, working with the other part of the brain to create a context for what you're seeing.
1: Uh, yeah. And just, well, one third is just brute force turning photons light. It's an mm-hmm. amazing process. The fact that it works at all is is beyond a miracle. Light in the form of photons exists out there in the world in front of us. And one third of our brain's job, 100% of the time, and often even when we're sleeping, although that's a little different, we can talk about that, is to burn a whole lot of calories, turning that light into meaning in our head. And that meaning takes the form of the images that we see uh, as soon as we open our eyes. And the walls in front of you or the clouds outside or the, the window frame or the computer on your desk or whatever it is. The fact that you're able to open your eyes and look at that is an incredibly energy intensive process that happens really fast. It takes about a tenth of a second from the moment that a, a photon enters your eye uh, before your brain recognizes what it is, puts it in context, and knows what to do about it. It's infinitely, fa- well, not infinitely, it's vastly faster than anything that has to do with verbal communication. Right. And it's a lot more energy intensive, which brings us to so that's data point number one. Somewhere between one-third and one-half of your brain does nothing but vision. Cool. The second data point is if you think about the human brain, it's actually a relatively small organ. You know, if you double up your two fists and kind of wrap them around each other, one fist around the other, that's about the size of your brain. It's, it's, It's not very big. I mean, your skull accounts for a lot of your head space. The skull is a thick bone, and in the middle of that is your brain. It's not very big. And by weight... Uh, the average human brain comes in at about 2% of your total body weight. So, uh, you know, it's it's a fraction, it's a tiny fraction of, of, your t- of your total body weight. And yet your brain, at any time, consumes about 20% of all the calories that your body is burning. So, 2% of your body weight is burning one-fifth of all of your energy. And more than half of that is going to vision. So, if you put those two together, it seems to me you've got a pretty compelling case that we shouldn't be talking about, you know, why would we need to be more visual? We should be talking about why aren't we always incredibly visual every time we go to make a sale? Because that's what the human brain does, is it processes imagery, it remembers things as pictures. Our memories are not stored as words. We can memorize a phrase and lock it in. I could, uh, you know, I still remember the Pledge of Allegiance or the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, you know, because Mm -hmm. I I memorized them back in fifth grade. But that doesn't, I could recite the Pledge of Allegiance, but I've never thought about what it means. It's just a string of words. Um, You know, but pictures are different. It's, the cognitive science is now pretty compelling. I mean, you mentioned uh, Daniel Kahneman, who is my favorite Business author of the last couple of years, and he's not even a business guy. He's a psychologist and 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 uh, economist and, right. and 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 um, you know it's it's fascinating realizing that cognitive science is starting to become pretty conclusive that you will not remember everything that you have seen in your life, but you will probably remember almost everything you have seen in your life, every image, every face and and Andy the the example of this it's a pretty simple little mental exercise you can go through the power of vision think for a moment how many millions of people's faces you're going to see in your lifetime and you know we were talking earlier you mentioned you live in new york so Andy you walk out the door of your home and you walk over to your office and i guarantee you've just seen 3000 new faces in you know in the in the 10 minutes it took you to walk mm-hmm. um and if you add that up over the number of days we're going to live and trips to the airport and trips to Disneyland and trips to foreign lands, how many millions of faces you're going to see, great. And then think, how many times in your life do you really mistake one person's face for someone else? You know, maybe 10, maybe 12. How many times have you really, really thought, wait, I know that person, that's Bob, and then it's not. It, it doesn't happen very often. And it's, the reason is because those faces— are all being stored and mapped. All of them. We have, it's a really interesting idea, if you were to take the visual capacity of the human brain, how many neurons we have that are dedicated to simply store, recording and storing images, uh, and you made a rough kind of comparison to the latest video compression algorithms, the kind of uh, video compression that is used to compress a video image into a Blu-ray disc. Mm-hmm. If, if you made an analogous analogous comparison, you have enough capacity in your brain to store 33 million Blu-ray movies. Whoa! Which is way more <laughs> movies than you ever have time to watch in this life. And so, um, you know, there's another, we're, we're talking about some, some great books out there. Um, there's another book called Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Foer. I don't know, Andy, are, are you familiar with this book? I'm familiar with the author, but okay. So, uh, moonwalking with Einstein—it's a great book. It's a story on how does human memory actually work, and and the author is a journalist who uh, became a a mental athlete, uh, basically a memorization athlete, and in a period of a year, went from being a very forgetful uh, kind of average. You know, like all of us, you know, you can't remember where you put your keys kind of thing, to becoming, I think, like, third or fourth place in the U.S. finals in memorization. And he did it based on these simple old kind of uh, tricks that are now called the idea of the memory palace. And the notion is, and this is ancient memory training, it goes back to the Greeks and the Romans – how did those orators memorize eight-hour speeches? Well, they didn't memorize the speech. What they did is instead is they assigned each thought within their speech to a particular visual. So, for example, they'd say, as I'm going to give my speech, uh, I want to talk about, I don't know, the importance of the water system of Rome mm-hmm. to keeping peace among the people, or whatever it was that they wanted to go off and pontificate. And they'd say, okay, so I'm going to imagine that I'm walking through my home And the first thing I need to do is I need to talk about water. So why don't I imagine that there's a big cold picture of ice water, you know, sitting there on on the uh, on on the shelf. And then the next thing I want to talk about is the importance of of keeping peace among the people. So why don't and I'm just making this up as I go, but why don't I imagine that um, there's a feather sitting on the next shelf, and the feather represents a dove, which represents peace, and blah blah blah. I go on, but the point is when the person got up to give their speech. They didn't remember the speech. All they would do is imagine back into the room, think in their mind's eye, okay, I come across a, uh, I see there a picture of water. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about the importance of water to our society. And then the next part is there's a feather. Oh, yes, and the feather represents peace. Water is a critical element to us, keeping the peace among our people as we grow and expand, and so on, and you create these visuals. And the idea that we're keeping on is you have pretty much infinite visual memory capacity and a very limited verbal memory capacity. And things that we memorize as words, there's a term for it, and I have forgotten it now, uh, <laughs> not surprisingly. That it's a word. Uh, it's a it's a it's a phrase. And what it is is that to retrieve verbally memorized statements takes an inordinate amount of memory energy to pull them back relative to the amount of benefit your your brain perceives getting from it. So this is a very long verbal way of saying pictures really cut to the chase and really give us something to remember. And we're talking about drawing and many people I'm sure are going to say, well I can't draw. And I don't know Andy if this is something you want to talk about, but
0: Oh we do draw. Yeah but that was really the next question it was yeah what's so we know that that visuals are way more compelling, way more memorable as you talk about. And yeah, I think what holds most people back is this this belief that they just can't draw. And you one thing I think sort of genius in your book is you say, "Well, gosh, you can basically reduce everything you need to draw down to six basic shapes."
1: Yeah. So there's there's two ways I address this question cuz I spend most of my career now, you know, teaching effectively teaching very senior, serious, very senior business people how to be better at communicators by drawing. And, and half of that is, okay, we got to get you to draw. And everybody in the room says, Dan, come on. You know, I'm an MBA from Harvard. They didn't teach me drawing. I haven't drawn anything since I was in second grade. I can't do that. And I say, okay, well, part number one, Andy, to your point is, yes, I can teach anybody to draw pretty much anything in about three minutes. And the way you do it is you say, All you need to do is be able to draw a circle, a square, a triangle, a line, a blob, and an arrow. And if you can draw those, uh, you can put those together. You can generate a little stick figure from time to time. And with those simple building block elements, um, with a little bit of practice, you can become comfortable drawing ideas and shapes and things pretty quickly. And that's point number one. And point number two is I, I let everybody know, look, this is not an artistic process. This is a thinking process. I don't care. Nobody in the room cares what your drawing looks like. Yeah, I don't. You don't care. need a Rembrandt. No, not at all. In fact, the the less you're like Rembrandt, the better off you're going to be. the The better you can draw your stick figure, so that it looks like a terrible stick figure, the better visual communicator you're probably going to be, because you're going to learn to be really fast, and that is what really matters. Can you capture the idea really quickly? And that's what we're after. And then the third part I'd say is let's be fair. Uh, The first time someone said, you know, write your name, you didn't know how to do it. You had to go through a lot of training to learn how to write. Years and years of training and dozens of different tools. And when I talk about tools, I mean things like alphabets and grammar Mm -hmm. and structure and sentences. And we had to learn all of that stuff, and it took us years. The beauty of drawing is you can learn the whole process in about five minutes. It doesn't take you years and years to do uh, the only thing you need to get over is, again, that ancient fear that people are going to judge you. And what you find out immediately is if you're the person who goes up, and if you're at least confident about drawing your circles and your arrows, nobody cares what your drawing looks like. If if they can figure out that's conceptually this, that's all you need to do. Um, and so, that generally gets most people past the sort of fear of drawing. And then there are some who, you know, for technical reasons or or sort of coordination reasons struggle. But even those people, when they see that they're in a supportive environment and people really want to know what their idea is, they'll go up and draw it. And and pretty soon, the confidence comes. Um, and it's also important, I think, to say, like many things, it does require practice. Uh, I had a funny story after I wrote The Back of the Napkin. And it's been almost 10 years ago now. And the book did really, really well. It was very exciting for a first-time author to have this you know, kind of breakout international bestseller. And I remember that... Uh, Kai Risdahl on uh, Mm -hmm. Marketplace on NPR uh, invited me to come down to Los Angeles and record a audio radio session with him when that book came out. And Kai, who, you know, great guy, it was a lot of fun, he he said, so Dan, you know, your book is called The Back of the Napkin, so I'm assuming that means that anybody can draw a picture to solve any problem right away. And I said, well, (laughs) no, not so much. You have to still know what you're thinking about, but the picture is going to help you clarify that. And um, that's when I, I really realized that it is a thinking process and all that we're really doing here with our pictures is adding another really powerful tool into your kind of your your tool belt of things that you can do when you're trying to put together an idea and communicate it with someone else. I'm not saying that you're going to be able to figure out anything instantly in 15 seconds just by sketching it out. What I am saying, though, is if you put in a little time, you will be able to figure out a way, a really compelling way, to clarify anything by using your simple pictures. It's it's easy, but it does take some time and a little bit of practice because it's a slightly different way of thinking. But the good news is it's not a difficult way to uh, uh, of thinking to learn. Right, And um, that that is a segue into something I wanted to share, but I don't want to Take on too much. Um, Go ahead. So, well, here's here's the magic trick for me. At the core of of my work and in all of my books is a kind of a breakthrough moment that took place while I was working on the back of the napkin, realizing that as someone who drew a lot in business and in these sales meetings. Sometimes i draw a picture, and it would be great. Everyone in the room, they'd look at it, and they'd say, yep, that's great. Let's move on. Sold. And then other times I'd draw a picture, and people would look at it and say, Dan, what the heck is that? that can you just tell us what you're, what you're trying to describe? And I realized there was a difference, something that was elusive between a picture that worked, it served its job well, and a picture that didn't, one that seemed to just kind of cause the gears to jam up. And I thought, well, it must have something to do with, again, neuromechanically, neurobiologically, how do how does our vision system work? And there are pictures that just pass right through the system just like butter. They just go right through, and other pictures that for some reason, do cause the gears to kind of jam up and and not flow. And so I started to, you know, I dusted off this undergraduate degree in biology and started reading everything I could about this the new emerging, amazing science of vision. And I came across a couple of things in particular that that said that one of the models of how vision works, and this is now an accepted neuro-mechanical cognitive science model of vision, breaks vision down into a series of discrete pathways where the visual engine, that is our eyes and our brain and our, our neocortex and our visual neocortex and all these different pieces are all working in concert. And the way they work is it's a process. You know, it's our, our brain is a machine. And uh, every machine works according to kind of a script, a a process. Things happen, and they always happen in the same order. That's how it works. And the order of vision is uh, the visual world is broken down by our visual engine into a set of discrete different types of information, each one of which maps to a particular visual pathway. So that's a very abstract idea, but let's name these pathways. One of these pathways is literally called the what pathway. It is a large part of our visual engine whose job is to identify the objects that are in front of us. So if I'm looking at a car, how do I know it's a car? Well, it's got a certain size, a certain shape, its edges are in particular places. It's a shape that I've seen before, so I know what it is. It's a car. Well, that's our what pathway. But then there's another pathway located in a completely different part of our brain, in fact, mostly located way down in our reptilian brainstem, which is called the visual where pathway. Its job isn't to identify the objects. Its job is to identify the position of things relative to me. And this is something we have in common with a crocodile. Look, a crocodile has no what pathway. A crocodile, no matter how much you try to teach it, is never going to recognize the difference between a BMW and a um, I don't know a Honda. No matter what, it's never going to be able to figure that out. It will never be able to recognize the difference between a car and a house because it doesn't have the abil- it doesn't have the what pathway. Humans have a lot of that, but what a crocodile has that we have is it recognizes really well how close is the object to it and how close is that object to the other objects that the crocodile is seeing, and so that's our where pathway, and then we humans. Have So if we were to break them down real quick, I don't want to be too pedantic about it, but it's kind of a cool model. In the end, there are six of these different pathways. um, And I call them the what pathway, the how much, the where, the when, the how, and the why. And that's based on this cognitive science model of how vision works. And those are actually the names of the pathways, and it's beautiful. Um, And what you can do then is you can say, well, wait a minute. If I want to describe an idea in a way that someone will understand it, I don't have to draw hundreds of different pictures. I just draw six. I draw the one picture that represents the information that each of the visual pathways is trying to find, and I let the mind of my audience stitch them together. And so, to give you an example, let me try to make this real for a moment. If I was trying to sell you, for example, on a safer car, Mm -hmm. I would draw a picture of a car and I'd say, "This is a car. Okay, fine. We've got that in mind. That's the one. And, dr- and that would be the what? And then the how much might be, let's draw a chart now. Let's think about quantitative information. Uh, and I draw a chart that might show um, rate of accidents per miles driven. And I would say that my car, uh, you, know, the, the one that looked like a circle, has very few accidents per miles driven, whereas the other car, the one that looks like a square, has a lot of accidents per miles driven. And so what I've done is I've said, what car? A circular one and a square one. Okay, great. How much? Well, my car, quantitatively, fewer accidents than that car. Okay, and now let's draw a map. So, so we've covered the, the uh, what pathway? The how much pathway? Let's talk about the where so pathway. So the,
0: the how much would be like a chart then?
1: It's it's a chart. It's right. just You just simply draw a chart. What is a chart? It's a visual way to quantify a set of data. Mm-hmm. Great. Right. Um, and for people that are into that, the best person in the world to look about charts is there's a guy named Dr. Edward Tufte who uh, was a professor at Yale who's written a series of books on data visualization and quantitative visualization and they're beautiful. And you know if you want to draw, draw great How much pictures to convince someone quantitatively of the value of your idea? Great set of books to look at. But there's another concept going on here, too, which is this where idea. And you might think about that in many different ways. So you know where do these accidents take place where is the car actually in relation to other cars and so you might draw kind of a map that says here's where accidents typically take place you know these roads are bigger than those roads so you have kind of a map that shows where these pieces fit then you draw a timeline that is the that is appealing to the when pathway that's trying to figure out so what's the sequence of things that happen when i my eyes are open and i'm watching an accident unfold. What is the sequence of events? Well, I see the car, and I see it accelerating, and I see the pedestrian moving into the road, and now the car is trying to slow down, and it either does or does not. So, this is my sequence. Well, then I might say, okay, now let's kick it up a notch. Let's go to what's now called the how pathway, which is the the visual pathway that pulls together all of these pieces that I've been capturing one by one. I've got a car, I've got some numbers, I've got its position, and I've got a sequence of events as the car is moving towards the pedestrian. Now I draw a flowchart that says the reason my car is safer than your car is because in this sequence, my car detects faster the presence of a pedestrian than your car does. Therefore, it stops before it hits the pedestrian, Mm -hmm. whereas yours does not. And And you can see we've created a little loop now My car's better numerically. Now I can even show you why that is so sequentially, how that maps out in terms of a flow chart, a kind of a sequence flow. And then the last one is I'd say my why is a very simple picture. It's the simplest one of all. I call it a kind of a visual moral of the story. And in this one, I'd simply say my car is better than your car because it's smarter. And and now I've visually created this entire sales story. And you know, it took me a few minutes, Andy, to walk through it, and I hope it's not too elaborate. But all you're doing is, if you and I were sitting at a table, I would have drawn out each one of these. It'd take me 15 seconds. And you know, I just made this up on the fly. Um, but I now theoretically have convinced you to buy my car as opposed to that other car, and I've shown you why.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and what you also talk about in the book is that that this is not a random order that you put them in. This is this is based on science observing this is the way the order in which we process images.
1: And you're right, and it's it should always be that order. And uh, there are variations, but that gets in kind of a, into advanced stuff and and it's what we're trying to do, I often think about this, especially when we're selling, especially when we're using visuals, is all I'm trying to do as quickly, as seamlessly and as believably as I possibly can, get what's in my head into your head. That's all I'm really trying to do. And pictures drawn in sequence, very simple pictures, in my mind, are the fastest and best way to do that.
0: And, I mean, sort of one last point on this is, is that and you have a 75-25 a rule, which I really, really like, which is if you're going to start using images and, and the way that Dan's talking about, you even get to the point where you maybe have sort of prepared some of these images ahead of time, you know, because you've been in sales situations, is that you sort of create 75% of it and then you let the customer do the balance. You know, so they're co-collaborating with you on or collaborating, sorry, with you on creating this this uh, co-creating the value.
1: It's a beautiful thing. I'm sure I'm sure everybody who has ever sold anything has seen that moment when you know the sale is made. Uh people's eyes light up. Mm-hmm. And it, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm glad you brought it up. Seventy-five, twenty-five, And I do rehearse. I do prepare. I want to be clear. It was kind of like the marketplace story. We're not talking about winging it. You, you wouldn't typically walk into a very high pressure, very important sales meeting having not prepared at all and saying, I'm so smart and I'm so clever, I'm just going to go in there and wing it and land the sale. I mean, that's pretty rare and, and usually that's a bad way to go. Um, you wanna be prepared because you wanna be knowledgeable about the client's potential problem or what you think it is. You wanna be knowledgeable about knowledgeable about what you th- propose as the solution and why mm-hmm. it will work. And you wanna have you, you wanna be prepared. And the same thing is true of our pictures. It's just that our pictures I find are are a lot faster to prepare in advance and think through and then practice once or twice so that when you do sit there with your prospect or with your client at the table and you do pull out the pen, you're you're somewhat fluid. You've thought this through before and you draw the picture and you're going to see your client's eyes light up because no one has ever done this before. You've got a piece of paper in between you and you're drawing on it and you're talking as you draw and you're pretty fluid with it. And then at some point, about three quarters of the way through, you do kind of stop. And Andy, you said it well. You say, you know, Andy, have I missed anything? Can and you slide the paper over and the pen, and you say, Andy, can you can you mark up here what you think is the part that's most important, or what have I missed, or what do you think is is really cool here? And usually they will. And now you're working together, and guess what? The sale is made. I mean, you've you've you are so far away from a sales meeting at this point. You're actually, I like your word, you're. Co collaborating, uh, you're solving the problem now. The sale is done. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, you're already there, and um, it works.
0: Yeah, no, it, it does. So I just to sort of start wrapping up is is really recommend people get this book. And you really use the word early on, which is one that people have read my books know I harp on a lot is this. You know, you the salesperson and sales today. You are the differentiation. You are the front line of differentiation, and with you in the eyes of your clients, because you know with their mind's eye, they see all these products that all look pretty much alike. And so, this is a great tool to use to make yourself the difference and to be memorable, and it'll yeah. go a long way to helping you close more sales. Absolutely. So, uh, with that, Dan, thank you for being on the show. Why don't you tell people how they can get in touch with you?
1: Andy, well, thank you. Yeah, it's easy. Um, I'm danroam.com. It's just my name, D-A-N-R-O-A-M.com. That's my kind of standard website. Uh, And for people who are more interested in a little more detail of this, I, five years ago, launched an online visual training academy. I was inspired by the Khan Academy, and I thought if Solomon Khan can teach people math and history by drawing while he talks, and you watch it on YouTube, why couldn't I do the same for visual thinking? So I started something called the napkinacademy.com. Um, and it's, uh, as I say, it's been going for about five years now. I've got about 3,500 people, um, who are pretty active community. We go through all of my lessons in short videos and then every three weeks we get together and, uh, share the pen virtually on the screen and, um, had a lot of graduates who have gone on to do great things visually in business, and it's fun. So, it is a paid service, but a lot of the videos are available for free. So, if anybody's curious what this actually looks like, go ahead and look at napkinacademy.com.
0: Okay. And go to Amazon and look for the book, Draw to Win. And Dan, thank you again for being on the show. And friends, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Remember, make it a habit to deliberately learn something new every day to help you accelerate your success. Easy way to do that, join my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Dan Rome, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So if you enjoy Accelerate and the value we're delivering, then please take a quick minute right now to leave your feedback about this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to it. And then come back and join us next time. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show.